Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to uh, those of you who are joining us here in the building and online uh, to this service of God's Word and Prayer. Uh, we begin this morning by singing praise to God, so please stand and join our singers at the front here as we sing, O Spirit of the Living God. Again, it's great to see you here in the building and online. For guests, we love having guests, so welcome to you. My name is Andrew Graham. I'm one of the ministers here. I trust you'll have a really worthwhile and enjoyable time with us today. Uh, it's week four of our Confronting Christianity series. Uh, we want clear minds and we want compassionate hearts as we seek to give reason for the hope we have as we're asked why we do what we do and why we believe what we believe as we follow Jesus. And today we're addressing one of the hardest questions, the question, would a loving God send people to hell? 
Uh, Scott Petty will be speaking to us from God's word uh, so that as far as possible we can speak the truth in love to those who may ask us for our reason for hope. What we're going to do now is enter an extended time of prayer, including the reading of a psalm. So I invite you to join me as we pray this prayer of preparation. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going to pray a prayer of thanksgiving. I'll give you just a, a few moments, though, to lift silently to God things for which you are thankful. And then we'll join together. Please join me. Gracious God, we humbly thank you for all your gifts so freely given to us, for life and health and safety, for power to work, leisure to rest, and for all that is beautiful in creation and human life. But above all, we praise you for our Saviour Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection, for the gift of your spirit, for the hope of it in your glory. Fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Psalm 19 is a celebration of God's goodness in revealing himself to us, uh, which closes with a plea that we'd listen well to his word and that he'd guard us in following him. So please join me as we recite sections of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I'm going to lead us in uh, prayers, uh, ranging from concerns right across the world uh, to those of people who are close to us and whom we love. Now, Father, we come before you humbly now, acknowledging that you are the Lord, the Lord of all. So help us grasp how wide and long and deep and high is your love for us. We ask for forgiveness where we've failed to bring honour to you, we pray you'll fill us with your spirit to guide us on the way 
and in the way of truth and love. Heavenly Father, Lord of all, hear our prayers for people who live in the midst of conflict. Bring peace to those who need peace, reconciliation to those who need reconciliation, and comfort for those who don't know what tomorrow will bring. We ask for you to be with all, especially children who are suffering, for those who are anxious and fearful, for those who are bereaved, injured, or who've lost loved ones. Lord, hear our prayers. May your kingdom come and your will be done. Heavenly Father, Lord of all, we bring before you the work of those who teach scripture in local high schools as part of Anchor RE. We pray that you'll use them week in, week out to help students understand the life-changing difference Jesus makes. At McKellar Girls, we pray for Debbie McKenna and Susie McDonald as they both recover from COVID and ask for strength as they resume teaching at, at McKellar Girls. At Balgala Boys High, we are thankful for a new assistant teacher, Angus Richards, and ask alongside Kieran Kolbelke, he'll connect quickly with students. And at Manly Selective, we pray for Ben Adamo, as this term he shows students how Jesus is at the centre of the big story of the Bible. And Lord, as we continue here at St Matthew's in the Confronting Christianity series, we ask that by your spirit you would fill our hearts with compassion and our minds with wisdom as we reflect on and engage with ideas and issues that can be confronting and deeply personal for some. May we bring you glory and bring blessing to people around us as we grow in grace and understanding. I'll give you an opportunity now to lift before the Lord silently concerns you have for loved ones and then I'll be leading us in prayer for those who have been long-term members here but aren't able to come anymore. Heavenly Father, we lift up before you dearly loved brothers and sisters who have been regular attenders here at 8 o'clock church but are no longer able to come while in full-time residential care or at home. We mention in particular Pat Irving, Theodora Smith, Dennis De Rosario, Robert and Ruth Ross, Liz Gillum, Norma Odlum, Jan and Russ Maddox, Basil and Edie South. We thank you for the care they receive from loving families and others that care for them. We pray that in their difficulty and isolation, you would be their ever-present comfort and strength. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. And finally, would you join me as we pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen.
Now we've got a chance to catch up on news at St. Matthew's as we watch the screen. Hi Church, I hope you've had a great week. I'm Cathy and I've been coming along to St Matt's for the last 27 years. I also oversee some of the office admin side of things here at church, which often involves me helping to organise food. If you've been with us for any length of time, you'll know that one of the things we like to do around here is eat together. If you're a part of our 8am congregation, you might consider staying around after the service for some morning tea in the function room. If you're a part of night church, there will be supper on offer up at the back of the church, straight after the service. It's hard to miss. If you're a part of our 10am and 5pm services, here's some advance notice. Next Sunday, we'll be sharing a meal together after both services. So clear your schedule, bring your appetite, and come ready to enjoy a meal together. Another thing we're good at around here is giving generously. Our ministry doesn't run without the generous financial support of our St Matthews family. And we thank you to everyone who gives. If you're not yet regularly giving and you'd like to start, the best and easiest way to do that is by setting up a direct deposit. All the details that you'll need for that are up on our website on the Give page. If you, would if you prefer to give in person at church, there are easy ways to do that with either cash or card at the back of church. Lastly, a very warm welcome if you are with us for the first time today. We would love to connect with you and hear how you found it. The easiest way to do that is by filling out an online connection card. All you need to do is scan the QR code on the cards under the seat in front of you. We'd love to hear from you, especially if we can assist you in any way. Update you on the, the food front for 8 o'clock church next, next week. As you know, we take O birthdays um, very seriously here in this congregation, especially 9 O birthdays. So Annie Cancroft is due to turn 90 on Wednesday week, and so we're planning a cake for her after the, after the service next Sunday. Right now we're going to sing again our offertory hymn, so I invite you to stand as our singers lead us.
My name's Scott. Uh, are you well? Good. I always uh, pictured you guys as people uh, who have a sense of humour. Am I right? Good. I'm going to watch a video. Ah, hello. It's nice to see you all here. As the more perceptive of you probably realised by now, this is hell. <laughs> and I am the devil. Good evening. Uh, but you can call me Toby, if you like. We, we try to keep things informal here, as well as infernal. Uh, that's just a little joke of mine. I tell it every time. Now, you're all here for... Eternity, Ooh. which I hardly need tell you is a heck of a long time. Um, so you'll all get to know each other pretty well by the end. But for now, I'm going to have to split you up into groups. Will you stop screaming? Thank you. Now, murderers. Murderers, over here, please. Thank you. Uh, looters and pillagers over here. Thieves, if you could join them, and lawyers. You're in that lot. <laughs> uh, fornicators, if you could step forward. My God, there are a lot of you. Uh, could I split you up into adulterers and the rest? Male adulterers, if you could just form a line in front of that small guillotine in the corner there. <laughs> The French, are you here? Okay. If you'd just like to come down here with the Germans, that'd be lovely. I'm sure you'll have plenty to talk about. Okay, um, atheists. Atheists, over here, please. You must be feeling a right bunch of nitwits. <laughs> And finally, Christians. Christians, 
Ah, oh, yes, I'm sorry. I'm afraid the Jews were right. <laughs> if you could come down there, that'd be really kind. Thank you. Okay. Right. Well, are there any questions? Yes. No, I'm afraid we don't have any toilets. Um, if you'd read your Bible, you might have seen that it was damnation without relief. <laughs> so if you didn't go before you came, then I'm afraid you're not going to enjoy yourself very much. But, but then I believe that's the idea. Okay, well, it's over to you, Adolf. And I'll uh, catch you all later at the barbecue. Bye. <laughs> The library cards. <laughs> All right. Hey, um, folks, I hope you have your Bibles open there in front of you. I want to ask the question as we begin, what the hell ever happened to help? Uh, in one point in human history, it was feared and loathed, but now it's a caricature, isn't it? Stuff of cartoons and comedians. The devil used to be a dreaded figure. Now he wears a silk smoking jacket and it's called Toby. What happened to hell? Is it real? Is it to be feared? Even if it is real, would a loving God send people to hell? And on what basis? They're some of the questions that we're looking at today, neck deep as we are in our Confronting Christianity series. You might remember in this series where um, we're investigating confronting questions about the Christian faith, not because we like courting controversy, love a good scandal, but because we want to develop coherent and compassionate answers that our culture asks about our faith. And I'm not sure that there's much that's more confronting than hell, if it's as real and as terrible as our scriptures and the Lord Jesus indicate. And so Rebecca McLaughlin, author of the Confronting Christianity book, left this question to the last chapter of her book. And this is what she writes about it. It's the hardest question to answer that every other question pales in comparison. It's the most difficult thing Christians are called to believe. Harder than believing in miracles or prophecies or that God has the right to tell us what to do with our bodies. And so today I want to start by asking the question, will the real hell please stand up? And then I want to investigate the question of the purpose of hell, why it exists, why it's necessary at all, before finally answering the title question, will a loving God send people to hell? Now, as I said um, in the introduction, hell was previously a place that people feared. And I don't know why that was the case for every person, every culture, but in the historical period known as the late Middle Ages, sort of between the 13th and the 15th centuries, the Italian poet Dante Alighieri wrote a poem, an epic poem called The Divine Comedy. And it was broken up into three parts, Inferno, which is the Italian word for hell, then followed by Purgatorio, before Paradiso, or Paradise, or Heaven. And the part called Inferno describes Dante's journey through hell, guided by the ancient Roman poet Virgil. And in the poem, hell is depicted as kind of nine concentric circles of torment located within the earth. It was sort of the realm of those who rejected spiritual values and yielded to human appetites and hurting their fellow humans. And attached to Dante's poem, were a series of woodcut drawings with rather fearful pictures like this one. They were mostly in black and white, but in people's imaginations, they were hideous. And in the Renaissance period that followed the late Middle Ages, they kept the vivid and frightful pictures, but they just added colour. So in this picture, entitled The Torment of St Anthony by Michelangelo, 
And, and that might all seem silly and primitive, but that's where billions of people got their understanding of the supernatural realm, heaven and hell, angels, demons, and the devil for hundreds of years. And if you're sitting there today thinking, oh, that is silly, isn't it just as silly to think that the devil looks like this? That he's a friendly, likeable, larrikin kind of figure, basically Australian, but a cartoon not to be taken seriously. Uh, a mascot for a footy team. And if that's what demons are like, if that's what the devil himself is like, then you hardly need to take hell seriously, do you? Will it not be a place of party where all the slightly naughty kids from school hanging out, having fun together? I mean, that's what I learnt from ACDC's Highway to Hell. Listen to the lyrics, or let's read them instead. Living easy, loving free, season ticket on a one-way ride, asking nothing, leave me be, because I'm taking everything in my stride. Don't need reason, don't need rhyme. Ain't nothing I'd rather do than going down party time. My friends are going to be there too. I'm on the highway to hell. I'm on the highway to hell. <laughs> well, it's into this kind of void of sensible information that Jesus speaks in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 48. And I want you to have the Bible open in front of you. We'll tra track through the whole chapter very quickly, and you'll see that it opens with a dynamic and vivid heavenly experience known as the transfiguration. You can see the, the heading there in your Bibles, in which Jesus' divinity is brilliantly revealed as he appears to some of the disciples in dazzling white clothes and is joined atop of the mountain by the Old Testament heavyweight figures of Moses and Elijah. Like the curtains of heaven this time are peeled open for a moment and a glimpse into the glorious kingdom coming is given to Peter, James and John before it closes again abruptly. In the next episode, a boy is possessed by an evil spirit and brought before Jesus, and the demon causes the boy to convulse violently and foam at the mouth. Right? There's no Toby with a clipboard about this. It's got real right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus casts out the demon, it's such a violent experience that the boy lies there motionlessly to the point where the crowd figured that he was dead. If you scroll forward just a few more verses, uh, the disciples are concerned that somebody else is casting out demons in Jesus' name. And so there in verse 39, uh, Jesus says to them quite tersely, Don't stop him, for whoever is not against us is for us. Right, A bigger squad is not going to hurt us, boys. We've got the Romans, we've got the religious, now we've got demons against us. It will not hurt us to have a few extras on the bench for us. There are spiritual forces at play, or at war, to be more accurate. And Jesus is right in the thick of it. Now that might not be enough to convince you in, to believe in demons, but I, can I suggest that if you don't, you're an anomaly uh, across history and across the world even today. If you go to Latin America or to Asia or Africa or even amongst indigenous communities in Australia, people have got no trouble believing in demons and in the devil and in hell because they have first-hand experience of demons. You don't have to convince them that the spiritual realm is real. They see it play out all the time. And so before we talk uh, soberly or seriously about hell, you're going to need to jump on board the spiritual bus the spiritual realm is kind of assumed knowledge here. Well, Jesus, he's at ground level, 
at ground zero, and he reports that it, the spiritual realm is alive and kicking quite literally, it seems. And as he continues talking there in verse 42, it becomes clear that he's got little kids in his arms during the whole discussion about casting out demons. Right, so not exactly PG. He had gathered them to show the disciples that instead of arguing about which one was the greatest, they should be more childlike rather than childish. They should even recognise that extending favour to these lowliest of citizens in Jesus' name is the same as extending favour to God. But then in verse 42, he says, you can't just welcome little children. You've got to protect them from sin. You cannot cause them to sin. And you can't just take sin seriously for the sake of the kids. You've got to take it seriously for yourself because hell is at stake. So let's read verse 43 together where Jesus says, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell where the fire never goes out. In verse 45, he reiterates the point. Cut off your foot if need be. It's better for you to enter eternal life crippled than with two feet be thrown into hell. Again in verse 47, pluck out your eye if need be. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell. Must be important, mustn't it? Because he makes the exact same point in three ways. And then he adds this description of hell on the third repeat there in verse 48, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Wow, smell those roses. So, a few things we need to say about hell before we can address the title question, would a loving God send people to hell? And the first is that we don't know precisely what hell will be like. In some places, hell or more accurately, the final judgment is depicted as outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other places, like this one in Mark, it's described as a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So is it hot or is it dark? You know, well, are there everlasting worms or are there gnashing teeth? You know, even the word Jesus uses for hell, Gehenna, is a metaphor. It was the name of a valley south of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom, in which the Israelites in the Old Testament had, had once unthinkably burnt their own children in the fire in sacrifice to pagan gods. And then it became the rubbish dump in which the filth and the dead animals of the city were burned. By the time of the New Testament, Gehenna was kind of the default term for God's final judgment. It was a very apt symbol of the future destruction. But, but that, that tells you something. Our descriptions of hell are symbols, they're depictions, they're metaphors. That doesn't make them less true. It uses imagery because the reality they signify is so awful and potent that normal language doesn't really suffice. I love TV. I love my TV. Uh, it brings news to my attention, it brings stories to life, and it requires very little of me in return. So I love my TV, although I'm, I'm trying to curate my media consumption to four hours, um, as outlined in that Godly Habits book we um, gave to you at On Board. And so I've stopped watching most of those um, mindless home renovation shows that personally I found very relaxing. 
thing is, I've got no idea how a TV works. But it doesn't matter, does it? I don't need to know precisely how a TV works to know that it works precisely. And hell is like that in some ways. I don't need to know precisely what it is like to know precisely that I do not want to experience it for myself. So friends, you don't need to know the exact contours to know that hell will be terrible. But you know that it must be real because Jesus spoke of it so plainly. In fact, he's responsible, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, for 11 of the 12 references to Gehenna or hell in the New Testament. So it's real and it's awful, whatever the blueprint. And Jesus spoke of it more and more plainly than anyone else. Furthermore, if you go back to Mark chapter 9, we see that it's connected in some way to our sinfulness. Jesus says you're better off conducting radical self-surgery on your offending body parts to escape hell. And remember, he's saying this when he's got kids in his arms. You know, talking about undying worms and unquenchable fires and bodily amputations. I, I think he's saying in a very stark way, I'm not joking here. If you cause these little ones to sin, if you yourself are stuck in sin, hell awaits. It's real. It's terrible. And it's connected as a consequence of our sin. Now, you might ask the question, well, why do we need hell at all? You know, why, why not just forgive and forget and move on? But friends... You know the answer every time you see an injustice in this life, don't you? That's never properly dealt with. You know that burning indignation you feel when you see an injustice? That's your answer. That unrighted wrong is your answer. Every time we find out a large company avoids its tax burden, depriving ordinary people of government services they need, right? You feel that burn, that's your answer. Every time a government breaks an election promise... Feel that burn? That's your answer. Every time a person is lured into bonded labour or sex slavery by malignant traffickers, that's your answer. Every time a kid is bullied, properly bullied, every time a stronger person uses their strength, whether it's physical, financial or whatever, against a weaker person, instead of protecting that weaker person, whether it's Harvey Weinstein or Vladimir Putin or a schoolyard bully or an abusive spouse, the burn of injustice you feel explains why we need hell. Now, about half of our church has gone to Europe recently. The other half is making plans to go next year. <laughs> That's okay, as long as you take me with you. I wonder if you went to um, Europe, whether you've gone to the concentration camps in Germany uh, at Dachau, just outside Munich, or uh, Sachsenhausen, just outside Berlin. And if you have, I wonder if you have felt that even death was far too little a punishment for the authors of those monstrosities. Well, if you have felt that, you've answered the question, why do we need hell? It's the ultimate righting of wrongs by God. It's the final reckoning for all injustices ever perpetrated. And so there is a part of us, even us, which rightly yearns for hell for evil and mischief to be brought to light, for perpetrators to be brought to account, for sins to be reckoned and wrongs to be punished. It is a right sense that we have. 
and it reflects God's righteousness, his moral perfection. But of course, the real rub of it is that God is way more thorough and he is way more perfect than any of us like, for he will judge not only the obvious monstrosities and the obvious monsters, he will judge it all. He's way more thorough and way more perfect than any of us like. As Rebecca McLaughlin says, the one person with the right to judge has all the evidence. He's got it all. So pluck out your eye. You know, the one that looks lustfully at someone else or somebody else's stuff. Or cut off your hand, the one that's taken something that's not yours. Or inflicted a wound on another. Or praised a fake God. Or withheld good from others. You know, we instinctively and we rightly yearn for justice, but when the finger points at us, when, when the scanner is applied to the contents of our life, not just our actions and words, but even our motivations and our attitudes, we begin to feel nervous indeed. And we should. It's an appropriate response. And the extent to which we might feel, wow, the punishment doesn't really fit the crime, that seems too harsh for humans who've never claimed to be perfect. Whatever that gap is, whatever it is, that's really a gap in our appreciation of the holiness and the rightness and the justness of God. He will treat us as our actions and motivations deserve. Would a loving God send people to hell? Well, a just God should. And Jesus says plainly that he will. Finally, we get to uh, the title question, would a loving God send people to hell? We rightly yearn for justice. Now we find ourselves yearning for something else. What is that other thing we yearn for? Mercy, isn't it? Mercy. Mercy. We think we love justice, but as it turns out, God loves it more than we do. And although that's wonderful news in the abstract sense, all wrongs will be righted, no injustice left unpunished, in the personal sense, it's very uncomfortable. We wonder if there's more than justice, something slightly more forgiving, gracious, benevolent, where God might turn his face towards us rather than away from us, where he dashes our sins and our shortcomings without dashing us. You know, friends, in Jesus, mercy triumphs over judgment, or as we sang in our first song, mercy triumphs over wrath. His love triumphs over hell. I guess it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus spoke of hell more than anyone else because he was the one who experienced it on behalf of everyone else, didn't he? Suffering he experienced on the cross course not so much about the physical agony though that was horrific you know we get our word excruciating from the word crucifixion gives us a hint of the kind of physical torment involved but you might remember on that night before he died in the garden of gethsemane jesus didn't pray that the physical pain might be removed but that the cup of god's wrath might be taken away In other words, the the real suffering Jesus endured was the hell-like experience of absorbing the righteous wrath of God that was due to us 
for our sins and shortcomings on our behalf. Coupled with the hell-like experience of having the Father turn his face away from his beloved Son and forsaking him unto death. If hell is both the pouring out of God's rightful judgment upon our sins and having him withdraw his grace and favour and friendship, then our Apostles' Creed is absolutely correct when it says, on the cross, he descended into hell. That Jesus took that upon himself willingly. He took it upon himself sacrificially. And of course, so painfully. Makes you wonder why, doesn't it? Well, the New Testament continuously reminds us it is because God so loves us. And so, friends, the question is not so much, would a loving God send people to hell? A just God ought to and will. But would a loving God go to hell? Would a loving God send his son a part of himself to experience hell on our behalf so that we wouldn't need to? Well, the Son of God went to hell for us, experiencing the full horror of its torment, that we might escape its fury, whether it's fire or darkness or something else, so that instead of bearing that horror ourselves, we can be friends with God even now and have a future with Him that we can scarcely imagine. It'll be so glorious. You know, this is why the good news is called the good news, because the bad news of hell from which he rescues us is so bad. More important than a just God sending people to hell is a loving God going to hell on our behalf so that we don't need to. Now friends, uh, that means firstly we ought to turn back to him as a matter of priority and as a matter of urgency. There's a great American preacher and publisher called D.L. Moody and he said... No one should speak on the topic of hell without a tear in their eye. I want to say, man, it's there. Believe me, it's there. But no one should speak on the topic of hell without a sense of urgency either. The 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says this, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, well, then he will punish those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Jesus has experienced hell on our behalf and all that awaits is his return with his angels. And so what's required of us, you can see there, is that we obey his gospel and that really means just turning and trusting in Jesus and his work. You'll see there in the last line that his people are described as those who, what, pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps? No, as those who believed in him. Friends, turn to Jesus as a matter of priority and trust and believe in him. Now, for those of us who are Christians, the reality of hell makes a difference in this life too. For starters, we take sin seriously, don't we? I mean, if our sins are the things that can send us to hell, now that we can be sure we'll be spared from hell, we're not going to want to go back to them carelessly indulging in them, are we? 
You remember Mark chapter 9, Jesus reminds us radical surgery is required in our lives, cutting out those parts, and really he means civil parts of our lives rather than body parts, cutting out those bits that are displeasing to him. I think the reality of hell also makes a difference to our sense of justice and revenge. We should continue to burn against injustice and work where we can to alleviate it. At the very least, redressing injustices that we are responsible for. But we can leave ultimate justice to God. He will right all wrongs, which means we can release our desire for revenge. You know, friends, every single wrong, every single one, has either been punished in his son or will be punished on that last day. So you don't need to exact vengeance, but you can instead pursue mercy and forgiveness. So Christians, let's worry about our own sins and let God worry about everyone else's. But as we finish, friends, hell is no joke. It's not comedy. According to Jesus, who experienced it on our behalf, it is real and it's terrible, whatever the blueprint. It's a just punishment. It's the ultimate righting of all wrongs. And a just God ought to send people there. Though that brings me no pleasure to say it, and it will bring God no pleasure to do it. But so much more importantly, and powerfully, and urgently, it is entirely avoidable by trusting in the one who suffered it on our behalf. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father God, we um, have listened carefully to the Lord Jesus describe hell this morning. Forgive us for uh, thinking it's a joke, uh, just subject of comedy and comedians and cartoons. For any friends here who wouldn't yet know for sure um, that they might be spared of hell. I pray you might put it on their hearts to consider it very carefully this day. For those of us who have already trusted in you, we want to give you thanks that you suffered it on our behalf that we might not suffer those horrors ourselves. And we pray that as a, as a consequence, we might not just only rejoice, but we might take our sins seriously and leave judgment and justice to you. And we pray this for the honour of Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, on that cheery note, we're going to stand and we're going to sing our third song for the morning.
Please take a seat. Well, friends, we're all but done uh, as we prepare for the rest of the week and come across to join in morning tea. I'm going to give you just a, a short while to reflect on what we've heard this morning. As we've heard that hell is no joke, that it's real and terrible and just, as well as being entirely avoidable as we trust in him who went there on our behalf. I'd just like to reflect on that for a moment and ask, what difference will it make to me this week if I take seriously what I've heard from God's word today? And then I have a word of encouragement for you. What difference would it make to take seriously for me what I've heard from God's word this morning? Scott will be around this morning if you have questions. Uh, I'll be around as well. And Deborah, uh, if you'd like someone to talk or pray with, we're very happy to do that. But let me uh, close our gathering this morning uh, with this word of encouragement from the book of Romans. May the God of peace fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.